Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. For a national park, a friend's organization can be an invaluable asset, which is why the arrival of Outer Banks Forever gave three parks on the Outer Banks of North Carolina a little extra to celebrate this National Park Week. You can learn more about this new organization at nationalparkstraveler.org. Other stories that we shared this past week included one on the designation of Dinosaur National Monument as a dark sky park, another on a song written to honor the national parks, and a feature looking at five units of the national park system in Alabama. You can find those and more stories at nationalparkstraveler.org. This week, I visit with Leslie Madsen, the president of the Grand Teton National Park Foundation. This organization has been the force behind Grand Teton National Park's Craig Thomas Discovery and Visitor Center, the incredible rehabilitation of the Jenny Lake area and its trail system, and the protection of 640 acres of land that could have been developed. We also take a look at some books focused on the Civil War, and Erica Zambello takes us on a short visit to Russell Cave National Monument in Alabama to wrap up this week's episode. National Park Friends Groups are an invaluable asset to the National Park Service. They raise money for worthy projects intended to enhance the visitor's experience, and some even play a role in creating the interpretive materials that help us all understand parks just a little bit better. Sometimes a lot better. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation has been an incredible ally to its namesake park that holds up the jagged western border of Wyoming. It has raised tens of millions of dollars for such projects as rehabilitating the trail system above Jenny Lake, protecting a 640-acre inholding that is vital both to migration routes across the park and scenic vistas, and making the Craig Thomas Discovery and Visitor Center at Moose possible, and so much more. To learn a little bit more about the Grand Teton National Park Foundation, we're visiting today with its CEO, Leslie Matson. Hi, Leslie. Thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. You guys have been busy. Uh, a lot of a lot of neat things that you've been involved with. Um, the Jenny Lake Restoration Project of the past few years, the Antelope Flats acquisition, the Molten Ranch Cabins, the Wildlife Brigade. It just keeps going on and on and on. Where do you find the time for all this? <laughs> well, we have got a great team here in, uh, at the foundation. And then, you know, we've got such a strong partnership at the park. So we're always really in sync with our partners in Grand Teton about what's next and what what can we help enhance and what are the next big projects. So we always have kind of a pipeline of projects that we're talking about or working on or starting design for. So um, no, we've got a great team here. So it's not just me, it's uh, a team of 11 people who participate in all of our donor outreach and communications and the actual project work. So yeah, but we're, we're busy. It's, it's fun to be busy. It's fun to get stuff done. Yeah, and obviously you've um, you've got a really solid base of donors out there who are willing to to either contribute directly or help you raise the money to make all these things possible. We do. You know, people come to Grand Teton National Park and fall in love with the place. So whether it's part-time seasonal residents, uh, full-time residents, and one-time visitors, you know, we have a lot of people who visit 
the park and want to help us make a difference. So we do. We have a wonderful, solid support group, and we continue to have meet new friends who want to help us. So it's really fun for me as the CEO to continue to introduce people to the work that we're doing on behalf of the park. I have to ask, has the, the change in the tax code affected individual donations that you've been able to tell? You know, they, they've they raised the, the standard deduction up, and so there's always been some concern out there in the nonprofit community that that change would uh, perhaps dissuade some folks from contributing because they can't deduct it from their taxes. You know, we haven't done a thorough analysis yet. You know, I've been reading a lot of the professional articles, and I'm sure you have too. We will do, we will analyze that when we you know, the fiscal year is over. Our fiscal year runs October 1 to September 30, just like the federal government's does. And we do a pretty thorough analysis at the end of every year to see what's happened in terms of increases and decreases and lapsed and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's too soon to tell for us. But yeah, no, I've, I've been tracking that as well in terms of the impact it could have on our work. Yeah, well, ho- hopefully it won't have any impact. I mentioned the Jenny Lake uh, Restoration Project that I'm guessing was the biggest in your history? Well, it's not the biggest in the amount of money we've raised, but it's certainly the longest project uh, in terms of how long it's taken to complete, meaning that, you know, it's been over five years. And because we have a short season in the summer here, you can't work on trails in January in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So it's done, almost done. There's a few last things that have to be completed this summer, as soon as the snow is gone, on the interpretive elements that'll be in the plaza area. But um, yeah, we're so excited to have it done. It's it's been fun over the years to watch it progress, but to finally actually take away all the temporary fencing for construction and you know the reroutes on the trail and all of that stuff as it was being done, it's going to be so great for everybody to be able to see it completed. And for those who who may not be familiar with it, it really involved a lot of um, rebuilding trails, rebuilding um, bridges in places, even rebuilding uh, pathways up to some of the higher points of the the Park Inspiration Point, I believe. I was fortunate enough to to go out there a couple times and see some of the work that's being done and that that has been done. And and some of the rock work is just amazing. The, The technique and the professionalism that went into it. It's just a beautiful, beautiful um, rehabilitation. Yeah, thank you. I mean, the partnership there, too, um, was incredible with Hirschberger Design, who's a local landscape architecture firm who did the Rockefeller Preserve here in Grand Teton, along with Sibbitt's Design, who's done all of the um, interpretive work. And then this group called Drystone Conservancy out of Kentucky, who came to our park and did a lot of the dry stone work that's in the front country, and then worked with our trail staff and our backcountry folks to uh, show them the skill. And that skill will, will stay in Grand Teton because now our trail crew knows how to do it. So we'll continue to use that, that beautiful, all those beautiful elements throughout the park were appropriate. So, yeah, amazing. It's really quite beautiful. And uh, if folks haven't been to Grand Teton for a while and haven't been to Jenny Lake for a while, it'll be shocking to see how improved it is. Yeah, yeah. The, the craftsmanship and the art uh, techniques that went into that dry stone laying is just just amazing. And, you know, if I had a farm, I would go up to study some of the work they've done there and take it back to the farm for my stone walls. Now, you're having a big celebration of this, 
aren't you, in, in July, yeah, I believe? Yeah, we're, we'll have a ribbon cutting on July 3rd. It's summer, but the peak doesn't happen until about a week later here. So early in the morning, we'll, we'll cut a ribbon on July 3rd and um, have folks available for tours and interpretive staff there and my staff. And uh, it'll be really fun to actually, you know, call this good. We've, we finished raising the money in April of 16. So that was now a few years ago. So we've been, you know, anxiously trying to complete the project based on the seasonal challenges we face. So a lot of people will be able to see the finished product, but then it'll be done, you know? So anytime anybody comes to the park during the summer season, it, it, there for folks to wander around. And we're particularly happy with the ADA accessibility uh, that was provided through this project. The Park Service actually won an award for that uh, piece of the project last fall. And it's really wonderful to be able to provide an area where someone in a wheelchair can roll right down into Jenny Lake and touch the water and and get around the lake uh, via a, a wonderful new pathway that allows for handicapped accessibility. Now, correct me um, if I'm wrong, but I I believe all this work was accomplished without increasing the human footprint, so to speak, in the Jenny Lake area. Is that correct? Yeah, no, that's totally correct. There was a lot of stuff that was taken away. So there were a lot of duplicative paths. There were, um, it was when you got in the back country, went over across the lake and the boat, there was one area called Confusion Junction where- intersection of multiple uh, trails and really through the help of our um, landscape architect and Grant Teton along with the Hirschberger design firm just taking a look at that and making making sense of it all and doing a master plan so now you kind of have a an, an up and a down route and while no one says you have to go up this way and you have to go down this way it's just kind of intuitive the way the trail is designed so it'll feel like uh, it won't feel as crowded for folks who are out there just by pulling people apart and not having kind of this back and forth rooting. So yeah, a lot of trail was eliminated and hopefully less lost kids because in that confusion junction area, kids would run ahead and the parents would know which way they went. Yeah. Yeah. Craziness there. Now, so you've basically crossed off the Jenny Lake restoration. You've acquired the Antelope Flats property to transfer to the park service. Um, What's your next big project? Yeah, well, one thing we did, um, the Molten Cabins out in Mormon Row, which was a bed and breakfast, we were able to purchase that uh, one-acre piece of property, and we're in the midst of getting that organized to transfer to the Park Service because we don't want to own it. Um, Once we transfer, it will become seasonal workforce housing for Grand Teton. So that's one piece, that one thing that still uh, we're working on. We're going to announce publicly in June a program or a project we're calling Snake River Gateways. And it's kind of like Jenny Lake on the snake. And what I mean by that is three, there are three spots to access the snake in the park, the Moose Landing, Pacific Creek, and the dam, Jackson Lake Dam. And those access points have, you know, they, they are just not in great shape. So with the, a lot of the same people and same groups taking a look at that, those access points and really doing a major facelift and providing interpretation and also making sure that people stay in the areas they're supposed to stay to protect the natural resources along 
the, the snake. So we're just in the early kind of quiet phase of that and um, been working with a, another great team of people who are advising us and helping with the design. So the sad thing is, you know, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time on the Snake River. Darn. Making sure that I totally understand the design of this. So it's going to awesome. be great. We're looking forward to it. It's going to be a really fun project. Yeah. Is is there a dollar amount uh, that you're uh, set a goal for yet that we can share with our listeners? Yeah, it's probably in the neighborhood of $6 million, maybe a little bit more. You know, we're still waiting for the final numbers in terms of what the the folks who are working with are providing. So it could go up a little bit. We may expand it to include more interpretation in access areas where, uh, even where we're not doing the work so that we've got a interpretive story along the snake. You know, it's a wild and scenic river. Last year was the 50th anniversary. We thought that was a great time to kick off a, a campaign that focuses on the snake. We've been talking with Leslie Matson. She's the uh, CEO of the Grand Teton National Park Foundation, which exists to help the Park Service wherever it can in, in improving or uh, making the visitor experience great at Grand Teton National Park. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Potrero Group provides flexible, customized, research-based business planning, organizational effectiveness, and executive search services. They work at the intersection of government, business, and nonprofit to help leaders see choices clearly and make difficult decisions with informed confidence. The Potrero Group. Find them at potrerogroup.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. This is Kurt Repencheck. I'm here today with Leslie Matson, the CEO of the Grand Teton National Park Foundation. We've been talking about some of the great projects that the foundation has been shouldering at Grand Teton National Park. And Leslie, one one question that I it keeps popping into my mind um, in recent years in looking around um, the national park system and what the friends groups are doing is the role of a friends organization for a national park evolving. Is it changing? And by that I mean, you know, when I started following parks, it was. The idea was that a friends group provided that extra margin of excellence for a national park, and now it seems that uh, friends groups are being asked to do more of the heavy lifting, so to speak, such as the the restoration of the Jenny Lake area. Yeah, you know, I think that um, we haven't done that yet. I mean, you could say that Jenny Lake is an area where the park should have funded it themselves, but they never would have been able to do at the level of the enhancement that we're doing with just their own funding. So, you know, the way we look at all of our projects is 
still, uh, you know, we have a really bright line that the money that we bring, private philanthropy brings, is uh, for enhancements and making things extra special. And in all of our projects, the Park Service brings money to the table as well. So they have skin in the game. So, you know, ever since we did the visitor center in Moose and uh, way back in 2007 and we completed that, there was a federal appropriation and then we raised um, private money. Same thing has happened at Jenny Lake. Uh, certainly happened at Antelope Flats, where it was a 50-50 split. And then um, even with this next new project, the Snake River, there's already funds that um, the superintendent has committed to that project. So, you know, we're really trying to hold the line on that in terms of crossing that bright line. I, you know, I think we feel strongly that we don't want to get into the business of doing what the federal government should be doing. It's their responsibility. Um, and if we cross that line, it would be really tough to go back. So <clears throat> I know um, I know of other friends groups have been asked to do more and um, but we haven't we haven't crossed that line. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly a tough situation in uh, today's uh, funding realities and uh, the huge maintenance backlog that the national park system faces. The more money wherever it comes from seems to be helpful. It does. No, and you know, Jenny Lake could have been, it was put into a deferred maintenance category, so to speak, because it was a trail that hadn't been worked on for a while. But, you know, I've been in this business for a long time in terms of private philanthropy. I don't think any of my donors would sit up and say, whoa, yeah, I'm so excited. I want to work on deferred maintenance. You know, <laughs> it's got to be a more special and impactful case statement than that for us. You can't get donor dollars for a water treatment facility? I probably couldn't. I don't think so. What about um, visitation to Grand Teton? I know, like many other units of the National Park System, it's been going up and up and up um, in recent years, certainly with the um, uh, solar eclipse uh, recently that uh, really shoehorned people into the park. Is it is it getting to the point where there, it might be too much of a good thing in terms of summer visitation? Well, you know, um, it's a big issue in Jackson Hole, period, not just Grand Teton in terms of the infrastructure here in this in this valley. And so it's, a, it's something that everybody's talking about, not just Grand Teton. But certainly, you know, the carrying capacity of, of the park is something that park management talks about. Um, it's something that we raise as a place for us. If we could be helpful with that planning, we, we'd be happy to do that. I think in these new projects that we're taking on, such as the Snake River Project, We've identified a new area that was underutilized, a couple places that were underutilized out, out by the Jackson Lake Dam where folks in tour buses could pull over, have some great visuals and a little walk. You know, identifying places like that so people don't all have to go to Jenny Lake or String Lake. So as we look around the park and try to help with the enhancements that we're making, you know, to help the park have, identify other areas where people could go. You know, certainly from the wildlife standpoint uh, and natural resource conservation standpoint, but, you know, the the decision about how many people to let into a national park, you know, that needs to be made at leadership levels. Um, mm -hmm. It's certainly not ours to, to make a decision about and certainly, you know, above the superintendent's level for sure. So, and I know there are a lot of parks that are just, a lot of people are coming to see these special places and we certainly want people to come. Just how do we manage it and make sure they don't impact the resources? Yeah, it's certainly a tough issue that, uh, as you noted, many many parks are grappling with. You you mentioned wildlife, and, and Grand Teton is doing quite well in that area, right? I mean, we've got wolves back in the park. We've got uh, grizzly bears. 
somehow all these things are, are working together without overrunning each other, human populations and wildlife. It's, a, it's an incredible place. I mean, Grand Teton, Yellowstone, the whole greater Yellowstone ecosystem, the Grand Teton National Park Foundation has funded quite a bit of uh, research in this area and volunteer brigades. So, you know, we've funded a lot of the program where they are identifying where wolves are through our funding of GPS collars and some incredible work that's being done that it's identifying some new migration routes outside of the park that then leads to additional conservation on private lands, uh, similar to the path of the pronghorn. So we're doing a lot of great stuff with the natural science staff in Grand Teton. And um, I think that's what makes Grand Teton so special is people come here and they see a moose for the first time or a bear or an elk. You know, it's, you can get out of your car and you can see wildlife and you see those majestic peaks and it's kind of like no other place in the world. It really is. And, and as far as the, the research element, I think, you know, sometimes that might be lost on the visitors because they are so struck by the landscape. And the, the research that your organization makes possible is so important in maintaining these wildlife populations and, and seeing that they can coexist with the human populations. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think an important thing um, is having data. And if the superintendent is going to sit down with land managers from the state of Wyoming or other federal land managers, you know, being able to sit and talk and negotiate or whatever it is, you know, that's happening, that to have the data about how many wolves there are in Grand Teton or, you know, some of this other stuff so that they can actually make a difference as opposed to kind of saying, well, we think there's 10 wolves or whatever. I mean, I think our funding is really uh, allowing them to get important data that they need, not just for talking to other land managers, but also to make decisions about maybe we shouldn't put a trail here because this is near a grizzly bear den or, you know, those sorts of issues. Well, we've been talking today with Leslie Matson. She's the Chief Executive Officer of the Grand Teton National Park Foundation, which does so many wonderful things um, for Grand Teton National Park and for the visitors who head there. If you're going to be in the Jackson Hole area in early July, you might stop by for the celebration of the Jenny Lake Restoration Project, which finally has uh, pretty much come to completion and uh, has really improved the visitor experience on the Jenny Lake side of the park. Um, Leslie, again, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to catch up. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park, 
The grant's donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit yosemiteconservancy.org to find more inspiration. If you save your American history, particularly the years of the Civil War, can you ever have enough books to help understand what transpired during those bloody years? I only wish I had the following two books before my visits to some of the battlefields, for they would have provided some valuable perspective as I walked the grounds. The first, Civil War Battlefields, Walking the Trails of History, is an impressive book by David T. Gilbert. The second, Civil War Places, Seeing the Conflict Through the Eyes of Its Leading Historians. It's a wonderful collection of essays from historians who studied the Civil War. Tranquil as it seemed as I ambled across the rolling meadow that gained the moniker Bloody Angle for one of the deadliest battles of the Civil War, the images that crept into my mind were vivid. Though only its foundation remains today, I easily imagined Willis Landrum's cabin on the edge of the forest, from which he watched as 20,000 Union troops charged en masse out of the surrounding woods and across his pasture land towards thousands of waiting Confederates. For 22 hours, starting around dawn on May 12, 1864, and lasting early into the next day, the battle raged, at times in a drenching rain that turned the field to mud. An estimated 17,000 soldiers died, were wounded, or taken prisoner. Walk the field today that's protected as part of Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park in Virginia, and you come upon several stone monuments that memorialize troops that fought at the bloody angle. Also a stopping point is a site where a tree 22 inches in diameter was downed by the hail of gunfire. You can walk this hallowed ground via a path about a mile in length that crosses features of the landscape called the Mule Shoe Salient and the Bloody Angle. Names taken both from a small U or V-shaped ridge or salient that the rebel forces hoped to hold in a battle against the Union forces. The Bloody Angle Trail that I followed is just one of dozens of trails of history identified in Civil War battlefields walking the trails of history, an impressive book by David T. Gilbert. Traveling from the Battle of First Manassas to Appomattox Courthouse, stopping along the way at nearly three dozen battlefields, the author first sets the scene at each location by laying down in stirring prose the events that took place there. Then, he selects a number of trails that you can follow through these hallowed places to not just gain a feel for the lay of the land, but to practically feel how the battles progressed. These entries are not similar to those found in hiking guidebooks, which take you almost by the hand from point to point. Rather, Mr. Gilbert in each chapter starts by setting the scene of what took place on these landscapes during the Civil War. Then he lists the available trails by name and distance and takes you back in history. For instance, in describing the Gaines Mill Breakthrough Trail that lies within Richmond National Battlefield in Virginia, Mr. Gilbert writes, This hike explores the climatic action of the Battle of Gaines Mill when General John Hood's Confederate forces finally broke through the Union line after several hours of ferocious fighting. A soldier of the 4th Texas Infantry wrote, Yesterday evening, we was in one of the hardest fought battles ever known. I never had a clear conception of the horrors of war until last night. Illustrated with 230 remarkable photographs, a mix of present-day scenics and historic Civil War images, this hefty 336-page hardcover book 
is certain to hold the attention of those interested in the war for hours. The second book, Civil War Places, helps bring some perspective to the epic war between the states. Through its nearly 200 pages of text, we're treated to the interpretation of various Civil War sites by a roster of historians. It's an interesting and unusual approach to Civil War history in that the contributors each based their essay around a location that resonated with them. For instance, William Blair is a research professor and director of the Richard Civil War Era Center at Penn State University. He centered his essay at Arlington National Cemetery in an area that, as he puts it, is a silent corner of the cemetery, far from the tourists who stream up the hill to the Kennedy gravesite in Arlington House. The headstones make the greatest impression as they sweep up, then down, then up again along the rolling terrain, Blair tells us. Puzzling to a newcomer are the words citizen and civilian on the headstones in what is supposed to be a military cemetery. Yet they tell a story central to Arlington and mirror an even larger story of black Americans who lived through the transitions from slavery to segregation. Carolyn Janney is a professor in the history of the American Civil War at the University of Virginia. She chose Burnside's Bridge at the Antietam battlefield as a backdrop for her essay. In it, she recalled her visit to Antietam in 1992 with her grandparents and how that bridge so struck her that she photographed it, a photo that now hangs in her office at the university. The photo, Jenny writes, brings so many memories swirling back to her whenever she looks at it. Memories of that visit with her grandparents to Antietam, how she chose Antietam for her junior history class project, how it influenced her decision to focus her graduate career on the Civil War. As I reflect on the way in which this place has continued to change meaning for me, I can't help but consider how the same must have been true for the men who fought there, writes Janny. The bridge surely evoked some mixture of determination and angst from the men of the 11th Connecticut as they stormed it in 1862. But how did the survivors experience the place when they returned to dedicate their regimental monument on October 8, 1894? Some must have paused to think of those no longer with them, those who had fallen along the banks of the Antietam or of another bloody field. Equally as important, the historian goes on, more than 30 years later, the survivors had a better grasp of what had happened elsewhere on the field in 1862, something they could not have comprehended during the battle. For those of us who have visited Civil War parks, walked the grounds, looked at the battle lines and the vantage points, it can be a struggle to comprehend the entirety of the events that took place. This rich collection of essays helps us frame those perspectives today, more than 150 years after the Civil War redefined the United States. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches.
There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. In March, I decided I wanted to see every national park in Alabama, and Russell Cave National Monument was stop number two. Russell Cave sat about an hour from Little River Canyon, the distance best traversed on twisting roads that led us through forest, farm fields, and past additional waterfalls. Established in 1961 as a monument by President Kennedy, the site is known for its archaeological importance. Now, it's important to note that you can't actually tour most of the cave itself. It's blocked off for your safety as well as the safety of the cave. Still, the visitor center is jam-packed with different artifacts collected from the cave, and you can take a raised boardwalk to the yawning mouth of the cave, which honestly is the most impressive part anyway. In addition to a small platform where you can look into the cave, the park includes a hiking trail that goes up a nearby ridge and gives you a pretty good view of the surrounding valley, as long as there's not too many leaves on the trees. For my husband and I, that all sounded pretty good. From the boardwalk, I could see that spring had also sprung on the forest floor. Pops of color contrasting with the brown leaf litter as violets, trillium, and more soaked up the sun. What was really interesting is the river that scoured out the cave actually flows into the structure instead of out of the structure. So as we stood on the boardwalk, we could watch the crystal clear water go into the cave until it disappeared in the darkness. This cave has been occupied on and off for about 10,000 years. And even just looking into the mouth of the cave, it's obvious to see why. The tall ceiling provides shelter from the elements without cloistering the inhabitants into a small space. And because that river flows into instead of out of the cave, those at the mouth can safely use the water for cooking or cleaning without worrying if other cave dwellers have spoiled it first. Despite excavations of the archeological material within the cave, its true purpose for Native Americans actually remains a bit of a mystery. As they explain on the park website, quote, since the first excavation here in 1953, it has been thought that the cave was used in winter by people who in warmer months moved to villages along the Tennessee River. But the evidence is not conclusive. It seems likely that most groups used it as a permanent home, perhaps for years at a time. Others did use it as winter quarters, while for year-round nomads, it was simply a convenient stopover. End quote. After staring into the dark abyss and imagining all the people who could have lived there, 
My husband and I ventured up the hiking trail on the edge of Montague Mountain. I'm originally from Florida, and if you've been there, you know how flat Florida is as a state. And since I've lived in Florida for four years, my hiking muscles have absolutely disintegrated into almost nothing. I can walk relatively even ground for miles and miles and miles, but just literally a few yards into our ascent, I already felt my calf muscles pulling and the soreness of my quads that I would feel the next day and the day after that. Of course, my husband did not feel the same way. He actually hunts in Alabama all the time and spends more time in the woods than I do, basically due to his more relaxed schedule and his job doing wetlands management. So as we're hiking this nature trail, he easily saunters up the side while I mentally cursed him from behind as I'm huffing and puffing behind him. Uh, It definitely helps that he's six foot five, which means he has a lot longer legs compared to my five foot six frame. So this trail was old school. Um, It was probably two feet wide. It looked like road pavement, just steadily facing up and up and up and up and up and up. I doubt that new slash modern path management practices recommend such a hard impermeable structure uh, in a steep ecosystem like this one, but I have to admit that as I was hiking, I appreciated how firm it was. Long ago, moss had grown across the dark surface of the pavement, and so even though I was huffing and puffing, I did love that kind of fairy image of this green trail weaving up the mountain. The park management staff, thank you very much, had conveniently put a few wooden benches at the very top of the steepest inclines, which means that I could sit down once or twice or three times while I waited for my breathing to return to normal. Since we were climbing in the springtime, there were relatively few leaves to impact our view of the surrounding landscape, and so we could really see the farmland beyond the National Monument as well as the surrounding ridges. And because this is such a, you know, a sacred space, home to human habitation for over 10,000 years, as I do with any places with long histories of habitation, every time I felt a wind gust, I also imagined all the lives that had once animated this area. This was stop number two on our Alabama trip. Tune in to future podcasts to see where we ended up for stop number three. This is Erica in Alabama signing out. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Rappincheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.